0: In 150 BCE, under the early morning sun-soaked plains of Hispania Ulterior in modern-day southwestern Spain, the Roman commander, Servius Sulpicius Galba, watched, visibly bored from his vantage point on a nearby hill, as the slow procession of thousands of regional natives, 30,000 in total, people of the Lusitanian tribe arrived in droves, hopeful for what lay ahead. Men, women, children, young and old, with all their meager possessions in hand, some few using mules to carry their burden, while others dragged rickety wheeled carts behind them, with one glaring omission, weaponry. All their warriors having been required to leave their weapons behind, spears, and the falcon-shaped curved falcata swords before entering the plain, the Roman soldiers gruffly collecting these and then directing the Lusitanians on where to go. At length, Galba arose from his seat, still covered by the shade of a tent, and addressed the group, mentioning that, despite the past years of bitter war between the Romans and the Lusitanian people, the treaty that they had recently established would finally allow them to live in harmony with one another, the Lusitanians agreeing to drop their arms in resistance against the Romans in exchange for each family being granted a tract of prosperous land to farm and live out the rest of their days in peace. The Hispanian natives were then divided up into three groups of 10,000, each group being directed to a different area to excitedly await their land assignments hours they waited, some settling down to strike up small campfires and prepare a meal as the Roman soldiers walked on by advising that they would be directed to their new lands shortly. More hours passing by with the noon hour having come and gone some of the people were settling down for a short nap after having taken their meal. Then those who had fallen asleep were awakened with a start not to be given their new land assignment, but to cries of distress and fear ringing in the air. Rubbing the sleep away from their bleary eyes, which soon widened in fear to see the Roman soldiers hacking away indiscriminately among the unarmed people. A nightmare unfolding in real life, Lusitanians bearing witness to a brutal massacre right in front of them, shrieks of panic with people trying to scurry out of the way in a confused mess of movement. The Lusitanians, men and women alike, used whatever they could. Farming tools, rocks from the ground, even their bare hands and teeth to attempt fighting back. But they were no match for the Romans who mercilessly cut them down. And by the end of Day of Misery for the Lusitanians, 9,000 of their number would be laying dead on the fields with 20,000 imprisoned and sold into slavery by the treacherous Galba. Only roughly 1,000 somehow miraculously being able to fight and claw their way out to safety, one of these being a young and tall warrior named Variathus. And while this was indeed a dark day for the Lusitanian people, this treachery would also serve as the definitive spark to reinvigorate and fuel their resistance against Roman rule, culminating into a long and savage dispute that would go down in history as the War of Fire. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. The focus of this podcast is on people, those defined by the term warlord. Fascinating warriors and leaders that made a huge impact in history. Some with more lasting effects and others that were relatively short-lived, but certainly no less interesting. That said, when I select a particular warlord, I plan to of course review their lifetime and actions, but also take this further by looking at the environmental and political conditions right before their lifetime, we'll explore their motivations for taking on the mantle of war. We'll cover what they did and how they did it, and finally, what their legacy was beyond their demise. But with the caveat that I'm going to look beyond the mainstream historical figures that everyone knows about by taking on lesser known subjects, such as the feature of this episode and part one of a two-part series on Variathus of the Lusitanians, also known as Viriato. So let's get into this straight away. Who exactly was this Variathus? Although many of you already have a good understanding of Roman history, this is probably not a name that many outside of Portugal and Spain would be familiar with including the War of Fire that occurred in the Iberian Peninsula over 2,000 years ago. As I delved into this story, putting the pieces together from a catalogue of sparse historical references, I couldn't help but start thinking of Varithus like the main character from a historical epic-type movie, reminiscent of a Braveheart-like leader. In the years leading up to Varithus' lifetime, the Roman steamroller had been working extremely well in Hispania. At that time, Hispania being the Roman name for the Iberian Peninsula. The Lusitanians were one of the many tribes that had resisted the rolling Roman conquests of the region from roughly 200 BCE onwards, initially seeing minor successes in the early stages. But as these wars dragged on, the successes dried up becoming fewer and fewer, not being able to stand toe to toe with the vast and unending train of Roman military might, and without consistent leadership to cobble together a meaningful resistance. Things were looking rather bleak for the Lusitanians, and it increasingly looked like the end was near, a notion that took a 180 degree turn when Variathus was immersed into the equation breathing new life into this resistance. Not being driven by personal gain, but motivated by the emancipation of his people and to stave off the exploitation of his homeland. As the German historian Theodor Mommsen so eloquently described him, it seemed as if, in that thoroughly prosaic age, one of the Homeric heroes had reappeared. He led by example, and was the type of commander that stood alongside his compatriots in battle, inspiring those around him to do more, sacrifice everything for the greater good, endeavouring to gain the acknowledgement of his people being on equal footing with the Romans, not as subjects, and with lands dedicated to Lusitanian sovereignty in perpetuity. Varithus arose from humble beginnings as a shepherd in his youth, a role that would have been interspersed with bouts of raiding and banditry in his later teens which would have been somewhat common between the tribes in that part of the world at some point in his 20s he became a warrior fighting against the roman conquest of his homeland in the iberian peninsula in what today would be modern day central east portugal and central western spain and that later appears in history essentially coming out of nowhere to become raised as the leader of a fierce and surprisingly effective Lusitanian tribal resistance against the inevitable might of the Roman Republic over an eight-year period from 147 to 139 BCE, incorporating both conventional and perhaps more importantly, unconventional and imaginative military tactics to inflict defeat after defeat of the Roman legions. All of this in retribution of the treachery and greed that had been displayed by the Roman governors as they steamrolled the region in the name of the Republic. Variathus is lauded by some as a master of guerrilla warfare, leveraging the natural strengths of his people and their intimate knowledge of the landscape to defeat numerous Roman armies and repeatedly wound their pride. This shepherd turned general consistently learned adapted and improved upon his tactics to arguably become one of the most successful commanders of his age and definitively one of the most effective rebellion leaders arising out of hispania using his guile and cunning to overcome steep odds astoundingly the romans in the end were not able to best him by force of arms instead resorting to the dishonorable route of bribes and treachery to finally put an end to Variathus. So you may be asking the question, if all of this is true, how is Variathus so obscure, with so little of a following from a historical standpoint? Well, firstly, this may be attributed to the fact that he had no biographers and no historical accounts coming from his Lusitanian contemporaries. Everything we know about him was written by Roman chroniclers. So we obviously have to take all these accounts with a grain of salt, comparing and contrasting the accounts to unpack the whole story, wading through the agendas that these historians had in mind. Part of this could simply be that his story just fell through the cracks into obscurity, or it was overshadowed by the other events that were happening at that time. Namely, the conclusion of the Second Punic War and the onset of the Third Punic War that took place from 149 to 146 BCE, that ended with the complete obliteration of Carthage, Rome's preeminent enemy at the time. Another possibility is one that brings us into a bit of a historical conspiracy theory of sorts this being a historical cover up by the Romans. To hide the embarrassing notion that they had been bested time and time again by a lowly barbarian shepherd. Not to mention the bumbling errors of countless Roman generals that failed against him time and time again. Also, burying the fact that the Lusitanian resistance arose due to the exploitation and brutality that the Roman governors had inflicted upon them and other tribes in Hispania. A number of historical accounts refer to Varithus simply as an uncouth common bandit or robber, certainly in disparagement, painting these tribal nations with the same brush as people who couldn't be negotiated with or trusted to keep their promises, thereby laying the groundwork to justify the vicious conduct of the Roman commanders and legions in the region that were using any means necessary to conquer and ironically, I would add in, to introduce a more civilized existence to these barbarians that were supposedly in need of education. But forgive me, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. I want to take a couple of steps back, and paint a more complete picture of the events and environment that led up to Varithus jumping into history and his meteoric rise. Firstly, who exactly were the Lusitanian people? The Lusitanians, or Lusitani in Latin, were an Indo-European people that were among the first migrants into the Iberian Peninsula, assumed to be of Celtic origin, whose tribal lands were in the central west of the Iberian Peninsula, prior to its conquest by the Roman Republic. More specifically, to nail down the geographical location in contemporary terms, the central east portion of modern-day Portugal, roughly including the higher and lower Beda regions and higher Alentejo, between the Douro River to the north and the Tagus River to the south, including parts of central western Spain, today known as the Extremadura region, a beautiful mountainous and hilly region with spectacular vistas covered with vast forests, the centerpiece of which, or heartland of the Lusitanian tribal lands, being the Serra de Estrela, or in English, the Star Mountain Range, which possessed productive gold, silver, and iron mines at the time, and the surrounding lands that were praised by ancient authors, speaking of its abundant natural resource wealth and a favorable climate for rich agricultural lands and livestock cultivation, including olive and cork tree groves towards the southern reaches. All of these resources being prized by the Romans and highly sought after with an insatiable appetite, grasping hands eternally reaching for more. This of course providing one of the key motivations for Roman interest in conquering the region. The Lusitanians were not really a singular nation or political entity. A better classification would be more like a tribal confederation sharing similar culture, customs, and language, but with each tribe possessing its own territory and chieftain, making decisions based on self-interest and completely independent from one another. Only when a large enough external threat arose did the tribes politically unite and join their military forces. As happened when the Romans began incursions into their lands from roughly 200 BCE onwards, Interestingly, ancient historians named the Lusitanians as a warlike people, which I find rather ironic, being that this was largely in response to Roman aggression. In my opinion, this was decidedly more of a propaganda spin, if you will, to help rationalize and justify why the Romans needed to conquer them, to civilize these barbarians and prevent any harassment of Roman-controlled territory. Which, of course, really means that the Lusitanians had a bunch of stuff that the Romans wanted. Granted, there is a grain of truth to the Lusitanians being warlike, but this was really quite common among all the pre-Romanized tribes at the time. Skirmishes and banditry would have been a regular occurrence among the clans that made up the Lusitanian people, and the adjoining tribes bordering their lands, raiding each other for livestock and food, while also dealing with blood feuds and the topography of their lands in which they were situated would have contributed to their natural aptitude for guerrilla warfare being that this was simply what they were used to how they operated raiding in small groups including defending against such activities to protect their livelihoods the lusitanian resistance to rome followed in the wake of the second punic war that ended in 201 BCE, wherein the Romans, after numerous losses on the Italian peninsula and at the very real risk of being conquered themselves, were finally able to defeat the renowned Carthaginian general Hannibal Barca at the famous Battle of Zama in 202 BCE. The Lusitanians had fought on the side of the Carthaginians, as did the bulk of the tribes in the Iberian Peninsula at the time, being that the Carthaginians in years past had established a firm presence in the south and southeast coastline of that peninsula. However, when Rome defeated Carthage in the Second Punic War, this extinguished the flame of Carthaginian power, thereby establishing the Romans as the undisputed superpower of the Mediterranean allowing them to readily take control of the Carthaginian lands, including their previous holdings in Iberia. And in 197 BCE, the Romans officially created and designated these lands into two provinces, these being Hispania Citerior, nearer Spain on the east coast, and Hispania Altidior, further Spain in the south. From that point onwards, These provinces would be administered directly by Roman magistrates called Praetors, who were appointed by the Senate in Rome to govern these provinces and conduct military operations, typically with a mandate of about one or two years, but with essentially limitless powers and with little to no oversight to operate as they saw fit. A recipe for disaster in the making especially since Carthage had been brought to its knees and no one else in the area to balance the scales of power and temper Roman ambition. The Praetors began to venture inwards into Hispania, ever deeper and deeper, ruthlessly conquering the native tribes and extracting wealth from these productive lands. Of course, the Roman expansion certainly had a great deal to do with enhancing the glory of the Roman Republic through conquest but in a more granular sense, this was largely driven by the Roman commanders themselves for personal gain, wanting to mark out their own place as a hero of Rome and use these opportunities to increase their overall wealth. What resulted was a Roman gold rush of sorts, exploiting the rich natural resources, including turning the native inhabitants into money through slavery hardy slaves being a highly sought-after commodity by the Roman elite, seeking no-cost labor to work their ever-increasing lands, allowing the elite Roman patrician families to become even richer. Things getting so bad at one point that laws had to be made to at least try and stem this atrocious exploitation. One piece of legislation in particular that would later be established in 149 BCE called the Lex Calpurnia, intended to prosecute extortion committed by regional governors. Although these laws did little to deter such actions and virtually no magistrates would ever be brought up on charges. Why? Because this was a function of the system within which the aristocratic Romans operated. Rarely would the senators convict one of their own. In some cases, family members too and few would be willing to defend the rights of a foreign people at the expense of someone from their class. What this meant for the regional tribes, of course, were few options to deter the exploitation levied by these Roman overlords. Either submit and accept the consequences of tyranny and overt oppression, or at least try to resist and fight back against this injustice, because no one else was going to come to do it for them. The Lusitanians were one of the Hispanian tribes that opted for the latter response, actively warring with the Romans from roughly 197 BCE onwards. In the early stages, they saw some successes, even making their way into Roman-held lands and sacking some of their cities. But in this war of attrition, the Roman war engine, with the legions at the vanguard, were gradually grinding them down. And really, no one could hold a candle to their devastating armies at that point, especially when meeting in a pitched battle. Now, let's add some further confusion to this mix. At this time, Hispania also held countless other tribes, tribal confederations, clans, groups, etc. Some of the bigger ones near the Lusitani, including the Vatones, Celtiberi, Celtici, Vecayi, and Carpetani, these being a tiny, tiny fraction of the many known names on the list. Each of these fiercely independent from one another, sometimes working with each other and also sometimes raiding and warring against one another. This was certainly one of the biggest contributing factors to each group being inevitably swallowed up by the Romans. If they had ever managed to unite and align their goals Perhaps the Romans would have never completed their conquest of the peninsula. But of course, this is something that we will never know. In stark contrast, the Roman Republic, for the most part, was a united political entity, with overarching goals that were seldom deviated from. And the Romans knew how to use this chaotic tribal environment to their advantage, manipulating loyalties through bribes and promises. So while some tribes were actively resisting Roman encroachments, others elected to throw in their lot with the Romans, hoping to curry their favor to the detriment of the other tribes in the region and also fighting as mercenaries on their behalf. By 179 BCE, the Romans completed their conquest of Lusitania and once pacified, the ruling governors began a harsh exploitation of its people and resources extracting untold amounts of wealth in the name of the Republic. But then interestingly, not necessarily sending the required riches back to Rome, instead keeping it to enhance their own wealth and providing excuses back to the Senate in Rome that the natives were being unruly and not rendering the agreed upon taxes, granting these governors further justification to extort even more from the beleaguered tribes. This was the state of the world into which Varithus was born in 180 BCE, just as the Romans were at the point of completing their initial conquest of Lusitania. In terms of Variathus's origins, I have to add in a disclaimer here that the details on his youth are rather unclear, being that he wasn't really anyone of note prior to jumping into history when made leader of the Lusitanian army. However, attempts were made by Roman historians later on. Some historical accounts have him being from the Atlantic coast side of the peninsula, but this has since been thoroughly debated. And from what I have gathered, it appears more likely that he was born in the heartland of the Lusitanian ancestral lands, near the modern-day Serra de Estrela mountain range in central-east Portugal which is most probable given the numerous historical accounts of him being a hardy mountaineer and reportedly where his simple homestead was situated. From his boyhood, he had been a shepherd and thoroughly familiar with life in the mountains, hunting as well to augment his family's table. Undoubtedly, a hard existence made worse by being under the strain of ever-increasing Roman demands. But such an existence breeds resilient people, a necessity for what lay ahead. And it seems that his physical attributes were celebrated too, a youth that grew into a tall and well-built man. As the ancient historian Diodorus described him, in strength and nimbleness of foot and dexterity, he surpassed all his countrymen. Like many of the hardy men of the peninsula, he was used to scanty food and much exercise. He took little sleep and was accustomed to arms and trained by fighting with wild beasts and robbers. Now, let's go off on a tangent for a couple of moments to talk about this, being a shepherd in ancient times. What comes to mind when you think of this? Likely a quiet existence, peaceful and herding sheep to grazing lands among beautiful mountain views. And yes, it would be those things but also laced with moments of danger, requiring a keen eye ready to spring off into action to fight off predators, both animals and human bandits alike. And it is more than likely that he would have also been engaging in this type of banditry as well as he got older, working in smaller groups consisting of his kinsmen, defending against and in turn raiding the flocks and resources of competing clans essentially laying down the groundwork and training to foster his skills as a guerrilla warrior which in future years would be adapted and directed against the romans lastly Variathus would have also certainly grown to resent the romans and everything that they stood for which from his perspective was seen as an unquenchable greed as the romans at that time were Brutally despoiling his homeland, squeezing every ounce of wealth they could out of it Carrying off resources and imprisoning his people to be sold into slavery Variathus in contrast held a deep-seated disdain for riches Which we'll learn more about later on and that helps us to better define his motivations for taking on the mantle of war instead using this as additional tinder to fuel his hatred of the Romans, knowing that they would not stop this tyranny on their own. The worsening economic strain and the abysmal treatment that the Romans inflicted upon Lusitania since conquering their lands in 180 BCE left the populace in poverty and with nowhere to plead their case. As such, in 163 BCE, tensions eventually boiled over, with the Lusitanians organizing a mass rebellion within their lands, pushing the Roman garrisons out of their main towns and cities, made easier being that the bulk of the legions were then focused on pacifying other tribes and conquering new lands in Hispania. And they saw some successes, allying themselves with the Veton tribe, whose lands were just to the east of Lusitania, and in 155 BCE, managed to push south far into Hispania ulterior, touching the Mediterranean coast, but were again defeated and overwhelmed. It's very likely that Variatus would have joined the Lusitanian army at around this point, gaining first-hand insights and experience of how the Roman legions operated and fought, key knowledge that would be vital to informing how he conducted his troops into the future, And being in his mid-twenties, he would have certainly been at the right age for this. This renewed war continued off and on for the next five years. Back and forth, the Lusitanians making incursions into Roman-held territories and the Romans mustering their powerful legions to push back these unruly Hispanian natives and brutally sack their cities. In 150 BCE, the Lusitanians managed to inflict a surprisingly heavy defeat on the Praetor of Hispania Ulterior, Servius Sulpicius Galba, who lost 7,000 soldiers in the battle. Alarmed by this, the Senate in Rome demanded that a clear message be paid in kind, regardless of the circumstances that had driven the Lusitanians to rebel. As such, the two most powerful Romans in Hispania, Galba, and the commander in Hispania Sitirior, Lucius Licinius Lucullus, both being notoriously greedy and unsavory men, augmented each of their armies with units sent from Rome and regional mercenaries to conduct a devastating pincer operation into Lusitania, engaging them on two fronts. Galba invading from the south, And Lucullus invading from the east, their operations so effective and complete that the Lusitanians suffered staggering losses, with seemingly no option but to offer up unconditional surrender. Unexpectedly, Galba received the Lusitanian emissary politely and even appeared to sympathize with their plight. The terms of peace were hashed out, with the Lusitanians agreeing to hand over their weapons end their resistance against Roman occupation, with the Romans in turn granting lands to the Lusitanian people in perpetuity that they could farm in peace. Galba ordered the leaders of the Lusitanian army to collect their people, family, and belongings and gather near the plains, just beyond the border of Hispania Ulterior in modern-day southwestern Spain. Taking us to that merciless event of infamy at the hands of Galba, that we covered at the top end of this episode, sparking the resumption of the Lusitanian resistance and Varithus's arrival. When the 30,000 Lusitanians arrived at the place Galba had directed, they were disarmed and divided into three groups. Each division led to a different area far from one another and he commanded them to remain in this open country until he could assign them their new lands. While each group waited in their respective area, Galba's soldiers proceeded to dig a massive trench surrounding the first refugee group to prevent escape, while the bulk of his soldiers then entered into this makeshift arena with swords drawn, disposing any who resisted, focusing primarily on the males of fighting age. This playing out three times over, each group quashed and fully in submission. By the end of this dark day of treachery for the Lusitanians, who had arrived in peace and hopeful for new lands, 9,000 of their people lay dead on the fields, with 20,000 sold into slavery in Gaul, which is modern-day France, with only about a mere 1,000 managing to fight their way out and escape the carnage, including Variathus they scampered back to their lands and began spreading the word of the atrocities committed, creating a firestorm of anger and resentment, hammering home the notion that violence was the only suitable response to be levied. The memory of that horrific butchery must have been etched into Varithus' mind and those around him, each vowing not to rest until paid back in kind. As a side note, the loss of 29,000 Lusitanians was certainly an event of shock and deep sadness, but would have likely accounted for a small proportion of their overall numbers, although we don't really have details on the extent of their population at the time. Clearly, Galba was a nefarious character, and would have been well-suited to play the villain in a movie surrounding these events. And adding to his charm... He was apparently exceptionally greedy as well. After collecting the plunder and having sold off the entirety of the slaves, he reaped a massive haul of gold. Although he was already one of the richest Romans alive at the time, he distributed a small fraction of the proceeds to his army and sent nothing back to the Senate in Rome. Although they did soon learn about the dastardly deeds he had committed. Interestingly, When Galba returned to Rome, he was brought up on charges based on the Lex Calpurnia legislation that we had discussed earlier, for the crime of extorting the Lusitanians for personal gain at the expense of the Republic, considered to be treasonous against the state. Unfortunately, however, Galba managed to escape these charges unscathed, using his riches to bribe his way out, with a flimsy rationale and witnesses that were obviously paid for in order to substantiate his arguments, blaming his inability to pay anything to the Senate on the Lusitanians, claiming that they, in fact, were the ones using treachery and waging war in a deceitful manner, not paying the taxes that they had promised. This whole farce of illegal proceedings against Galba does something else for us as well. It also highlights one of the foundational cracks that was appearing in the Roman Republic a foreteller of future problems and corruption, which would be one of the factors in the eventual decline of the Roman Empire. The rich becoming richer at the expense of the middle class, which was effectively disappearing at the time. Meaning that for the poorer citizens of Rome, voting, elections to public offices, and deciding legal matters was increasingly based on whoever the highest bidder was. Clearly a definitive problem for a properly functioning republic. In addition to this, the laws enacted to prevent these types of unsavory activities, the Lex Calpurnia for example, had little teeth and virtually no enforcement. The consuls and praetors of these foreign lands were operating with very little oversight, so they could use their vast powers to easily find indirect ways of getting around these types of legislation, thereby enabling heavy exploitation and atrocities on a massive scale. Now, obviously not all the Romans were bad people, some quite noble and forthright, but in wading through these historical accounts, it appears that the governors in Hispania, at least at that time, were quite brutal. Now, let's get back to Varithus' story. The action and horrific betrayal at the hands of Galba both renewed and galvanized the Lusitanian resistance, inciting a massive uprising in the face of tyranny from their Roman counterparts, who at that time may have been a little distracted and unable to focus the full weight of their armies on the region, being that the Third Punic War against Carthage had been kicked off, which was waged from 149 to 146 BCE with the Romans essentially erasing the weakened city of Carthage off the map. And while this gave the Lusitanians a little breathing room to maneuver and wage a resistance against the Romans, for the initial three years of this renewed war, their leadership was tactically poor from a military standpoint and was met with many failures in the field. It's at this point that we learn about Varithus, who pops up, virtually out of nowhere to appear in history with his first documented feat of war in 147 BCE. He was with an army of 10,000 soldiers that invaded the Roman territories in southern Turdetania, in modern-day Andalusia, Spain. Gaius Vitellius, the Roman commander of Hispania Ulterior at the time, easily learning the location of this invading force, In turn, gathered his 10,000 strong army and marched with speed to meet them. Finding them in the process of sacking a Roman-held town and using this opportunity to catch them off guard with a quick and harsh direct attack. The Lusitanian army soon buckled, not being able to stand toe-to-toe with the Romans and fell back, falling into retreat. However, the Romans pursued them relentlessly, Vitellius eager to destroy this large Lusitanian force that would then impede them from making any meaningful future attacks and potentially quelling the uprising right then and there. This chase continued for days until the Romans had the Lusitanian army pinned down in a particularly disadvantageous geography from which opting for battle would have proved costly for the Hispanian natives their leadership having not adequately planned for such an instance. Finding themselves trapped, the Lusitanians appear to have little choice but to beg for forgiveness and subject themselves to Vitellius's mercy. Negotiations began, the Lusitanian leader offering up surrender in return for lands, with Vitellius seemingly ready to accept those terms. That is, until Variathus arose imposing in his stature, and voicing his complete disbelief before launching into a frustrated rant among his trapped kinsmen. Although he was little above a common soldier, he berated the Lusitanian leadership, reminding them of the past Roman atrocities, especially Galba's trickery, emphasizing the idea that the Romans could not be trusted to honor their promises, that nothing would satisfy them or their greed until they had taken everything, including their fruitful lands and their very lives. He then concluded his epic speech by saying something resembling, give me the unlimited command of your brave warriors, and I will rid the land of our fathers of these mortal foes. Now, this must have been one heck of a speech, because right then and there, Varithus was raised as their new commander. Marking the very starting point of his prominent rise and a devastating campaign of retribution upon the Romans, Varithus immediately sent word to Vitellius to prepare for battle, organizing his 10,000 warriors into battle formation, with Varithus accompanied by 1,000 hand-picked mounted soldiers at the front, the best riders of the group. Vitellius, of course, did the same thing, supremely confident with his legion's odds of success, given the unfavorable ground occupied by the Lusitanians. Variathus and his mounted contingent surged forward at a quick pace, as if to charge the wall of Roman shields ahead, which triggered the other 9,000 Lusitanian soldiers to break off in a wild sprint. But not in the direction of the Romans, but in a seemingly chaotic craze, heading off into all directions. Vitellius must have been somewhat bewildered on what was happening, perhaps assuming that this was some type of ruse to be used in the attack of his group. So, he instead kept his legions together, focused primarily on the 1,000 mounted Lusitanians that were ahead. Only, this wasn't some type of ingenious attack, but it did prove to be a brilliant escape plan hatched by this new general, Variathus, The decoy of his 1,000 horsemen, allowing the rest of his army to escape the field, this being prearranged. And with a rallying point far off in the mountainous and hilly wildlands near the Roman city of Tribola, southeast of modern-day Seville, Spain. And just before the Lusitanian horsemen were about to charge into the Roman infantry, they too stopped and turned back. Vitellius ordered his army forward, but the remaining Lusitanians would not commit to battle, this happening throughout the day and the next, which helped to do two things. First, give more than enough time for the 9,000 Lusitanians to escape, and secondly, tire the Roman soldiers out, including their more heavily armed cavalry, who were unable to keep up with the swifter and lightly armoured native horsemen. At length, as night fell, When Varithus was confident that his troops were far out of danger, he commanded his mounted warriors to ride away into the darkness, so that they could also reconvene at the meeting spot near Tribola. Herein lies one important advantage that the Lusitanians held over the Romans, that Varithus would repeatedly take advantage of into the future, in that Varithus and his countrymen were born and bred in these lands holding deep knowledge of the topography, whereas the Roman generals would come in for a year or two of service, thus significantly at a disadvantage in their knowledge of the landscape. Vitellius was in a rage on being duped and how this force was able to escape his grasp, determined to track them down. His scouts brought him reports that the Lusitanians had again gathered and were marching south towards Tribola moving surprisingly deeper into the Roman-held lands of Hispania Ulterior and he immediately marched off in pursuit to put down this renegade before it would give way to a broader uprising. The reason that Vitellius was able to identify where the Lusitanian troops were heading so quick was because Varithus, having then reunited with the bulk of his army, made sure to leave signs of his army's passing luring the Romans deeper and deeper into the forested foothills and rocky mountainsides, land types that Varithus and his men would have been well accustomed to travelling in. As Vitellius led his 10,000 soldiers into the area, straining and focused on catching up with the Lusitanians, Varithus and his men sprang out from behind the dense forest and foliage, spears splintering and falcata swords brutally flashing, as they fiercely set upon the Roman contingent, catching them completely by surprise. This was the perfect spot for the ambush, with the Romans having nowhere to escape to, being that at their backs was a sheer cliff ledge. The Romans were beset at all sides, tired from the forced marches, caught off guard, and with only a sheer drop at their backs. The resulting battle was a stunning victory for the Lusitanians. After hours of tough fighting, although we don't know the losses on the Lusitanian side, presumably minor, the news of the day was certainly that the battle had been a disaster for the Romans, with almost 5000 of their soldiers, roughly half their force, either being cut down in the battle or pushed over the cliffside, including Vitellius. The path now cleared, Variathus then led his victorious troops into Tribula where they plundered it, also restocking their food supplies and arms, but apparently without the brutal mass destruction that the Romans typically engaged in. When the news of this victory began making its way to the nearby cities and towns, what followed was an influx of Hispanians from various nearby tribes and areas, disaffected with Roman rule, began seeking out Variathus to offer themselves up as soldiers to the rebellion. In the meanwhile, the Roman survivors of the Battle of Tribula had retreated southwards to the fortified Roman-held city of Gades, modern-day Cadiz in southern Spain. Although Vitellius lay dead somewhere in a nearby mountainside, the highest-ranking remaining officers realized that there was no way that they were going to be able to take the fight to the Lusitanians in this weakened state, reduced in numbers and demoralized coming off a stinging defeat. So the ranking officer sent urgent pleas of reinforcement to Rome, but knowing that this could take months, he also sent commands to their Celtiberian allies in northeastern Hispania, ordering them to attack the Lusitanians to prevent them from gaining even more momentum in their uprising. Although the details on this engagement are few, reportedly 5,000 Celtiberian warriors responded to the Roman call and ventured south to meet the Lusitanians in battle. However, to the shock and dismay of the Romans, the entire Celtiberian force was wiped out entirely. This defeat of the Roman legions and their allies left the Romans without a sizable army in the region, providing a great deal of freedom for the marauding Lusitanians to move about Hispania. What an astounding turn of fortune for the Lusitanians in these last three successive engagements, when in months past, they were on the verge of collapsing in surrender. There was an undeniable excitement building amongst the tribesmen and their growing numbers, that they were on the edge of something great. As such, with more freedom to move about, as 147 gave away to 146 BCE, Varietas led his army northwest into Hispania Citerior, intending to relinquish the Roman hold on other areas and weaken their future ability to wage war on the Lusitanian lands, eyeing the Celtiberian city of Segobriga, approximately 100 kilometers southeast of present-day Madrid, Spain, to teach them the price of working with the Romans, which was also assumed to be the previous headquarters and staging point for Lucullus's savage eastern incursion into Lusitania four years prior. With no Roman armies in sight, Varithus ravaged the countryside at will, destroying any remnants of Roman-held fortifications or that of its allies, eventually reaching and sacking the city of Segobriga itself. At this point, morale was extremely high within the Lusitanian ranks, and they had seen nothing but success so far with their new leader, now possessing an immense baggage train stocked with plundered riches, intending on bringing these back to the Lusitanian inhabitants in compensation of the previous wrongs that the Romans had inflicted upon them. But the Roman response was coming. While situated in Segobriga, Varithus' scouts had learned that a new general, Gaius Plautius, at the head of another Roman army, including 10,000 infantry and 1,300 horse, had recently arrived in Hispania Citidior from Rome and was bearing down on their position. Upon hearing this, Varithus immediately commanded his troops to retreat from Segobriga, moving west towards the Tagus River. Plautius was keen on getting to them before they could get across the river, which would have allowed the Lusitanians to use this natural barrier to a hugely strategic benefit. So he detached 4,000 of his fastest troops to go off in hot pursuit of the tribal army, which is a little surprising to me, given that Plautius had to be aware of his detachment being significantly outnumbered, with the Lusitanian force being in the realm of 10,000 soldiers. But herein lies a nugget that lends to the notion that the Roman generals habitually underestimated their Lusitanian opponents, not realizing that they were capable fighters in their own right and with a leader that was possessing of a brilliant tactical mind. Scouts informing him of the Roman detachment swiftly coming straight their way, Bariathus, thinking on his feet, quickly began concocting an ambush for the Romans to step into keeping 4,000 of his warriors around him, he sent his remaining 6,000 troops far out of view so as to not scare off the Roman vanguard. Bariathus then employed a feigned retreat tactic, drawing the 4,000 Roman troops inwards, thinking that they had caught the Lusitanians against the river. As the two roughly equal strength forces struck into each other, this triggered the remaining Lusitanians to jump into the fray, charging into the Romans from all sides, surrounding and quickly decimating their group, allowing the Lusitanians to resume their westwards march, crossing the river and into their tribal territories. Given Plautius's rash actions, resulting in an embarrassing blunder and the loss of so many of his troops, you might think that this would have given him clue to pause and reassess his approach, wait until he had a bigger army or had acquired some regional allies. Perhaps he was working with intelligence that suggested that the Lusitanian group was smaller than it actually was, or maybe he thought that the Lusitanian victory was a fluke since he had not been there in the command of the initial assault. Well, whatever the rationale, Plautius, with his reduced army in tow, continued the pursuit, being led deeper into the Lusitanian lands. Variathus, of course, completely aware of the Roman force following behind. While marching, he must have been considering his options in terms of selecting the ideal geography for the imminent battle that this chase would soon lead to. But he took his time and prolonged the march, drawing the Romans further into hostile territory where their supply lines would have been dangerously overextended. And in doing so, running out of food and water, this would force the Romans to attack sooner than they would like and under suboptimal circumstances, the lengthy pursuit did have an endpoint, with Varietas selecting a place called Venus Mountain, where they would make their definitive stand against Plautius and his army. Now, it's unclear exactly where this mountain is. However, based on the information at hand, it appears that this was in or near the Serra de Estrela mountain range in central East Portugal, where Varietas grew up, which makes sense because he would have known these lands like the back of his hand. So what better place than your own backyard to find grounds that would act as a distinct advantage for his forces? In any event, this is where Plotius caught up with Varithus, finding the Lusitanians in a strong defensive posture. Plotius was clearly an impetuous general and immediately ordered an assault of their position. The legions having the unenviable task of fighting uphill, while the tribal warriors rained stones, arrows and javelins down upon the attackers, followed by ferocious counterattacks, spears and falcata swords brutally hacking into the Roman ranks. In the end, the Romans had been defeated completely, their legionary standards taken, which of course would be a huge deal and a source of great shame to the Romans. Plautius only narrowly escaping this disaster with his life, retreating back to Hispania Sitior, and then back to Rome, where he was received as a disgrace due to his epic failures and mishandling of the entire situation, his fate ultimately being one of exile from Rome. This victory hugely inflamed Variathus's image, admiration and renown, hailed as a hero, with even more Lusitanians and people from other tribes committing themselves to their cause, to oust the Romans from their region for good. What they could not have known, or perhaps didn't want to believe, but certainly in time would come to learn, however, was that the resources, army, and reach of the Roman Republic were essentially limitless. In the next episode we will get to better understand this notion of limitless resources as Rome sends army after army to take down this lowly shepherd turned upstart general Variathus, who begins to evolve and improve upon his tactics employing a unique blend of guerrilla warfare and conventional pitched battles to achieve dazzling victories painfully hampering the Roman expansion into Hispania through a campaign known as the War of Fire, forcing the Romans to instead resort to treachery to stop him, what they were unable to do by force of arms. Then we'll review Varithus' legacy, the lasting impacts of this War of Fire, and how his indomitable spirit continues to inspire people to this very day. And much, much more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. I would certainly appreciate a five-star rating if you found this episode informative or entertaining. And lastly, you can head over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional info like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure, and where you can also reach out to me with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions on future Warlords that you think I should do an episode on. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from Audionautics.com.